Well, it's a good day to uh, gather in the house of the Lord and, and uh, worship our God and study His Word. Today I want to um, do a little bit of an epilogue, uh, if I can. It's not easy to do with uh, a study like this. It kind of was multifaceted, but, but I'll give it my best shot. Uh, so open, the, open your Bibles to Acts 17, and uh, we'll reread uh, the verses from 16 uh, to the end of the chapter. Just a couple of things. Um, I have available to you some study references. If uh, you can just get with me after the after the class today, and I'll give those to you. Basically, just some of the things that were in my library I used as references. There are certainly many other good ones that that, I, that you can get on the web, or maybe you have in your own library. Also, John Nestor wrote a little pamphlet that's been around, I think, about a year or so, called Who is God? And there's, he's made a, uh, about 10 copies available back there in the library. And it's, uh, it's based off the uh, Westminster uh, Larger Catechism, Question 7, which is one that I referenced, and uh, it's got the Scripture proofs. And he gives a little uh, introductory paragraph, and then a lot of Scripture on the back, which I thought was really good, concerning a lot of the attributes of God. While our entire study wasn't about the attributes of God, I thought that'd be a really good reference. So this is back there for you, available to take. All right. Well, we started in late July, wasn't it? And uh, studying in Acts 17. And um, so let's look at the verses again. I'll read through them um, at a good pace here. Beginning in Acts 17, verse 16. Just to remind us of where we started. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were uh, conversing with him. And some were saying, what should this what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time and nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one blood every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own, your own poets have said, 
for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So uh, thanks to God for his word in this in this particular section. I thought it would just be good to refresh our minds about where we began and thinking of Paul in the uh, uh, entering into the city of Athens there. Remember when we began, those of you that were in the study, we, we wanted to approach the study of Acts 17 from three different perspectives. And uh, the first one was simply just to draw out of the verses, those, the section we just read as much as we possibly could, just to essentially exegete the verses. And that's what exegesis is, drawing out of God's word that which is there. A uh, uh, little commentary, do, uh, isogesis is reading into the scripture what is not there. That would be bringing preconceived notions or false views and ideas of God and pressing that into the word of God. As a faithful way to uh, read or understand or teach the Word of God. So we draw out what God says. Of course, His Word is so wonderful that, that every time we uh, read and study the Word of God, we draw new um, blessings from it and encouragement. But we, we looked at the verses, and we remember that, well, I can't go over a, a lot of the details, just kind of uh, summarizing the things that we saw initially in the verses, the apostle entered the city of Athens and he found a great contrast which shocked him and, and provoked his spirit. And that was that entering in, ex expecting the, the, uh, the great intellectualism and culture, uh, which he certainly found in, in beauty, uh, it was kind of the height of, of man's knowledge and intellectualism. And yet he found a very deep, uh, dark spirituality. He found a lack of true biblical knowledge uh, concerning God and concerning Christ. And so that contrast, uh, you know, to have, to have men and women so given to knowledge and wisdom, and but they had no common sense because, you know, these great minds and all this man's developed religion and science had, had plunged them into darkness and not given them light. And that's true of all of us outside of God's revelation, isn't it? So, so he... He began to teach wherever he could, and remember he was opposed by the, the philosophers there, and, and they, they invited him, I don't think he was dragged, but they invited him to the place where they might have a public hearing, and they might say, let's, let's hear what you have to say. We want to hear these things. And so Paul gave a good testimony, didn't he, of Christian doctrine. He spoke forthright, without compromise, and he began to lay out for them um, and argue that God, the God, created the universe and all things in it. And having done so, he also governs that universe that he has created. And he, so what Paul was doing, remember, is he immediately set the God of Scripture apart from any other God, because there is none like God. And he began to take their mind, which was focused in the, in the dark 
darkness of their own man-made ideas of religion, and he began to elevate them up again to our own Creator. And this is what the new birth does, essentially the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul couldn't do this, it's the work of the Spirit, but it is ours to teach and to encourage and to share our testimony about what we know from God. It is ours to help people to elevate again their thinking up above themselves and up to God again. Remember, we are all created in the image of God. That is there, <coughs> even in our fallen uh, condition. We understand things of God, though they're repressed by sin. We can't, we can't uh, understand them savingly, but we can understand much about God, it says there in Romans 1 and 2. And so Paul began to do this. He began to speak to them as a, of a God who is not limited to any one place. Remember, they were focused on places and images and ceremonies and gifts and appeasing the, the deities. And, and so God said, you know, one God created everything that exists. He's not limited to a particular space. You don't go over there to find your God. or You don't go over there to find God. He, he's not limited. I'm, I'm going to intentionally, through this first section, not name the attributes because I've got something fun to do at the end. So you might wonder, why, did, why didn't he say what that attribute is? I want you to think about it. Um, so he is not limited to one place, but he, uh, he fills all things. And it, Paul also goes on to say he's not served with human hands as though he needed anything. You know, man wants to serve uh his created God. You know, I'll make a God and then I'll serve that God and that God will be happy with me if I do that. I can appease the, you know, the God of my own imagination. But not so with, with God uh, in reality. He doesn't have any needs. And he goes on in the verses we just read that he says, um, God created man and spread him out over all of the earth and gave him his appointed times and seasons and the limitations of his culture and his influence. And he did that so that man might seek after God. And he mentions then, though, he's not far from any one of us. And uh, there's another hint at an attribute. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> um, he, uh, God sets the places, the epochs of time, the geographic and cultural boundaries that we will all habitate. Isn't that great to think of that? You know, just pause for a moment and think about the fact that you know, some things seem random to us, but nothing is left to chance. There is no such thing as chance, biblically speaking. God has ordained that that you be here and that you live in this area or the areas you've been in the past. He's, he's determined the influence of countries and kings and, and cultures uh, and political systems. So uh, he, he, he has purposed those things for his glory that man would seek him. And Paul goes on and he says, now that... Uh, in Christ, the full revelation of God, God is demanding that all men everywhere repent. It's, he's overlooked the times of ignorance in the past. He's kind of let man, you know, feel around in the darkness of his own religious ideas to a degree, except through the chosen people Israel, whom he was revealing himself truly through the prophets. But, but among the nations of the world in general, he was not revealing himself as such, was he? But now, to... Uh, an essentially pagan culture, non-Jewish, although there were Jews there, but non-Jewish culture, he was saying God's commanding all men everywhere to repent. He's not overlooking the ignorance of that time anymore because he's revealed the true light. He's revealed the bright, bright blazing glory of his revelation through the person of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. And so he encourages them to 
repent without delay. And he mentions that the reasons for that is because God's going to judge the world. That day is fixed. It's not arbitrary, it's fixed. God is going to judge it through Jesus Christ, uh, king and judge, and he's going to judge it uh, with righteousness or with righteous standards and only righteous people will enter into his kingdom. And we become a righteous person, not by our good works, but by the works of Christ in our behalf that we might, uh, in that case, having been saved and justified, uh, we might work the works of God. So that's kind of the, that was kind of in a summary fashion of what Paul uh, did in his, in his uh, words there to the Athenians. Now, he speaks about the resurrection, and as we saw at the end there, that's kind of what finally stirred them up, you know, at the end. When he, when he began to speak about the resurrection, some sneered, some said, well, hear you again, and some believed. Um, but the resurrection is a very important doctrine. I might just say a very quick word about that since Paul emphasizes it here as a part of his uh, reaching out to the Athenians. Uh, we know the importance of the resurrection, but remember this, all men, all mankind, without exception, will be resurrected from the dead. There's no exception to that. All will become immortal. But the destinies of those resurrected will be very different. Some will be raised to everlasting life, some to everlasting condemnation. And so um, you can see this, the warning that's inherent in what Paul said, and we brought that out when we were studying that. You know, you know the day of judgment is fixed. The, the King Christ is, is the, the righteous judge, having become man and, and you know, knowing all that man is except without sin and having been resurrected as the first and only to this point, it gives proof that we're all going to be raised from the dead on that day and that we'll stand before him. So that's the, that's the inherent warning there. So that was kind of the first uh, approach we took. The second um, way we looked at these verses was we considered Paul's methods in proclaiming the gospel. And, you know, we really, uh, I think we wove that in. You just kind of naturally weave that in through the whole study. Um, but we focused on a few things uh, in particular for a few weeks about Paul's methods and the way he approached, you know, the Athenians that he, he saw and the idolatry there, the way we might approach our culture today, certainly uh, post-Christian um, culture here in America. So we basically looked at two things, or asked these two questions. One, what was the foundation of the Athenian idolatry? You know, what was behind it? What was their thinking uh, that, that led them to where they were? And then secondarily, how did Paul seek to turn them away from that? Uh, and how did he engage that culture? So first of all, uh, we noticed that at the heart of the Athenian idolatry were a lot of false assumptions and false uh, beliefs. And they were these, number one, comparing the creator with his creatures. And that's one of the main ones, I think. And I got this from the Geneva, 1599 Geneva Bible. Remember, these were not my own thoughts, but I was, I was reading and I saw those notes. And, and uh, I was looking at some of the notes of the reformers concerning some of these. I saw that. And there were three little notations about Athenians and their foundations of idolatry there. I don't know if it even called them foundations, but, but I thought it was really good. So... So I'll rob this from them. But they said comparing the creator with his creatures is, is at the heart of the Athenian idolatry. Uh, that, without biblical 
moorings without biblical landmarks is very easy for us to do in our human nature, isn't it? To begin to compare God to ourselves. And because God is incomparable to anyone or anything, we might naturally, even with renewed minds and with scripture in our hands, might have a tendency to build a God in our thinking of our own liking or our own imagination or what we wish he were rather than what he is. And so just a little caution to all of us as we study uh, the scriptures concerning God to let the, the Bible uh, drive our thinking in that regard. But, you know, you, you see how far that can go, okay? You begin by, you know, man, men and angels are the height of God's creation. We, you know, he has blessed us in that way. But, but it doesn't stop when you bring God down to the level of men and angels. It doesn't stop naturally there, does it? What happens after that? Okay, we go up and God comes down. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, you read the first part of Romans and we see that it doesn't, it, it, you know, man's wicked thinking doesn't stop with just bringing God down to our own level and saying, well, God is like us. He, he, we begin to make the God who comes to the lower creation and we begin to make the idols. And then man just in his, in his you know, fallen ideas of religion and why you have to worship begins worshiping the creatures rather than the creator and even the creeping and crawling things, you know? And I don't know that the, the Athenians had a, a God that was a worm. Maybe they did. I haven't read of it, but I mean, you wouldn't be surprised, would you? They had a worm God. I think of cultures that have an earth God, Mother Earth, you know? It's just, you know, it's just Terra, right? It's just strata, but they worship it, you know, so... So those are the, that's the idea. When you compare the creature with, the, with uh, the creator, excuse me, with the creatures, you begin down a slippery slope. Uh, the second foundation of idolatry we looked at, and I'll have to move quickly here, is that they limited the creator within a place. I already mentioned that. It's easy to, to confine your God within a space. If I want my God, I'll go to the temple. Otherwise, leave me alone. It, it, when, I, when I want religion and I want to be to appease the God or gods and all, I'll go find them. You know, they're there if I need them, or he's there if I need him. So, but as far as being truly, you know, Lord over me, and that I'm obligated to do his will, really, you know, unless I make him really mad and have to do something to appease him, I'm not going to think in those terms. So they limited God within a place, and they're thinking, of course. Paul countered that, and we'll talk about that. And they, the third foundation of idolatry there in Athens was that they, Tempted to appease God with gifts. They try to allure their gods with gifts. So we're giving our God something. We're, we're producing something with our hands. We give to our God. That will allure his favor. That will cause us, our life to be good. That will cause the curse to go away, whatever they might have vainly imagined. So, so Paul counters those lies. Those are false beliefs. Those are false ideas. And so Paul counters those with some of what we read, and he answered the fact that they compared the creator with the creatures with God's infinity and God's power and God's creation of all things. He separated God so far away from man, so much beyond man that we could ever imagine that there's no way you could compare man to God anymore. He said, the God who created the world and all things in it, universe, he spoke it into existence, and everything that exists, including us, he created it for his good purpose. He was the wise master builder. He designed humans. He designed angels. He designed planets. He designed the universe. He designed everything from the largest to the smallest. And so if anyone was 
thinking at all, and surely the Athenians had a mind that they could think with, albeit darkened in sin, they would have thought, if that's true, then that God that you're describing is nothing like me. Not even close. So far above. And that's, again, the place to start, where Paul started. He broke that foundation down. The second thing he countered was when they limited their creator within a place, he spoke of God's spiritual nature and how that God fills his creation entirely. That there's no part of his creation that he's absent from because God is not contained within the universe itself, but the universe is contained within God. And so what God has created and sustains, it's his power, his energy, his uh, ability to make it all cohere. And so God is in every part of his universe. We're not saying every part of the universe is God, like pantheists would say, but we're saying God fills his universe. There is no place in the universe that God is not. And so Paul countered the idea of, of limiting him within a particular place. Even in religion, uh, even the Samaritans in Jesus' day, remember when he spoke to the Samaritan woman and uh, she wanted to, she realized he was more than, this was more than an average conversation and uh, it was unusual that he would even engage her in conversation being a Jew and then he, she realized he knew what he was talking about. He was a religious man, maybe a prophet. And, and she, she said, well, let's have a religious conversation then. You know, you Jews worship over there, and we Samaritans, we worship over here. Well, what was Jesus' answer to her concerning where you go to worship? Do you remember? Everybody will worship wherever they are. Okay. And that God is the Spirit, and okay. those that worship Him worship Him in spirit. In spirit and truth. He de-emphasized the locality, didn't he? And he emphasized the spirituality of God. Yeah, exactly. She got you? She beats you to it. All right. Body one, faith zero. <laughs> Not a competition, is it? No. That's at the end of this lesson. You just don't know it yet. It's <laughs> um, exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and so, and Jesus did many things like that to emphasize the spiritual nature of his kingdom, especially among the Jews, which was a, was a stumbling block for them. And they expected a geopolitical, physical, you know, type of kingdom. And uh, he crashed those ideas to pieces, so they were not willing to yield to it. There's a large group, segment of Christianity today still not willing to yield to the spiritual nature uh, of Christ's kingdom. Uh, but it's taught. It's, uh, it's thorough in the scriptures. Okay. Now, the third thing, moving on, uh, he answered the idea of attracting and appeasing God with gifts with God's ownership of the universe and, and all things in it. Look at verse 25, if you're still open to Acts 17. He said, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. I mean, the, he's the all, he's the be all end all. He's the one ultimately giving to all, not needing anything from anyone. There's nothing that we could do to contribute to God's needs because he has no need. And so you can't appease him with gifts. He, he owns it all. He created it all. He governs it all. Verse 26 also goes on. It's helpful. He made from one blood or one person. I'm not sure exactly how to translate the word there. Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He's determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So, um, you know, to... For God to govern to that degree, which is, again, an idea that the pagans don't like, that God is intricately and intimately involved in every part of, of 
the creation that he has made, especially us. Um, it's, Paul came in and said, you know, he is. He, he is sovereign over it, and he is governing it. And history is simply the unfolding of God's eternal purpose. Nothing random about history. There's nothing random about the future because God has purposed it in every degree. Okay, the, uh, so how did Paul work then, if those were the foundations of idolatry, how did Paul work to kind of turn people away from idols to God? Well, he, he, he attacked those foundations, right, with scripture truth. That's what we have to do. We have to understand where people are coming from, like Paul did, and we have to see what's behind what they're saying. Because a lot of times the things they say and the ideas that they hold are simply uh, evidence of a deeper false idea or false belief or false practice. So you have to kind of get to the bottom of it. And when you think you're at the bottom of it, then you say, okay, now how can I take my pickaxe and chip away at that foundation? And ultimately in chipping away at it, it will crumble. And they'll be left with nothing except uh, to face the truth. Well, Paul did this in several ways. We said uh, that his message was evangelistic and, and Christocentric. His, his message was evangelism. Evangelism is a communicated message. Evangelism is not some ethereal idea or osmosis. It's a spiritual work in the heart. I know that's the unseen part. But as far as what we do and how people are brought to a knowledge of, of Christ, it, it is a communicated message, verbal and written. Is it not? I mean, God made it simple. I've heard, I've heard fantastic stories in other countries, and you have too, of a man that was holding some evangelical meeting, and he, and he hadn't even gotten up and spoken a single word, and a thousand people were saved. Well, these type of fantastic claims, I wonder, well, I don't doubt the power of God to act and work in any way he so chooses. He has, in fact, ordained that through the communicated message, the faithful message, verbal and written, that he will draw his people to himself. And so with that as a foundation, I do hold a little skepticism, maybe a lot of skepticism towards, towards some of those fantastic claims that no word was spoken, no gospel was preached, and yet thousands being saved. I wonder how those things can be. Um, Paul warned them about sin and its consequences. He explained to them the remedy for those consequences, and he called upon them to repent and believe. Christ. In your, in, in your witness to people, you should have those elements. If you're wondering kind of how do I, what's the framework through which I should always try to speak to people, it's very simple. You're, you're always warning them about sin and its consequences. You're giving the remedy for that, which is Christ Jesus having come in the flesh. And then you're, you're calling upon them to repent and to believe the gospel. A lot of times, even in preaching today, there's no call to repent. And, and uh, that's strange, isn't it, biblically speaking, that you would not call men and women to respond to the gospel. It's not, God is not presenting us with a few choices like a smorgasbord at, at a cafeteria where we go through and go, oh, I do like that, but no, 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 I'll pass over that. You know? So you just kind of pick and choose if you want it. You know? If you don't want it, no big deal. I mean, we should not present the word of God like that. I mean, this is... This is imperative, you know, that we believe what God has said. And so Paul presented it like that. And um, having done that, he was very effective. Paul was effective because he preached God's truth uncompromisingly. Now, not unlovingly, but uncompromisingly. We can do that too. We can speak the truth in love. 
If we don't speak the truth and we overemphasize love because we feel doctrine divides or doctrine is you know, going to upset the person, then we're not doing as we're asked to do. Churches that emphasize love over doctrine become weak, do they not? And they become emotional and they're led along by social ideas and, and emotion. Now churches, on the other hand, we might say that emphasize doctrine, but forget that it is balanced by the love and compassion of Christ toward us and should our approach should be the same. Those churches become cold. Those churches, you know, they got their doctrine right. And I've been a part of a few of them, you know, in my, in my growing up. I mean, we got that doctrine. Yes, you do. But you're missing something. <laughs> it's driving me away from you. <laughs> You are a very cold and calculated and proud person in your doctrine. Well, that's not the way, that's not the response that understanding the truth of Scripture should have in us. It should just drive us to thankfulness and compassion upon people. But we don't compromise either, do we? We don't compromise doctrine to love people, and we don't compromise love to give people doctrine. We speak the truth in love, and there's the balance. So that's, that's, the, that's the key, I think. Paul did that. Uh, Paul not only preached God's truth uncompromisingly, but he knew that it was not only God's truth, but it was God's power. Now, I like the, I like the idea, it's not an idea, but I like the reality, I should say, that when we go out there, we look to win people. We are trying to win souls for Christ with every, every bit of power we have. But we're recognizing that the power to open hearts and minds is not ours to do. But what has God chosen to do? He's chosen to speak to men, men and women through men and women. He's chosen that his power joined to his truth, faithfully preached, will be the means that he uses to open hearts. He's opening hearts, but we are the means. One of the means. We are the, maybe a better way is to say we're the conduit through which the word of God is presented. <laughs> and so we're to win souls. And Paul did that. He earnestly and lovingly appealed to people uh, to win them to Christ. <clears throat> and Paul's preaching always caused some type of response, didn't it? Some type of controversy. You know, it said there in the last part of the verses, especially concerning the resurrection, when he said that, when they got that part of his message, some began to sneer. You know, the noses went up. Oh, this, oh, <laughs> resurrection, oh. Who believes in a resurrection? Crazy idea. So some began to sneer. Some said, we're going to hear a little bit more about it. Some their interest was piqued. And then some believed, and this is great, not a, not a whole lot of response here, but some very important things happened. Among whom was Dionysius, the Areopagite. guy. So a man that is a part somehow of the Athenian culture and, and elite and, and governing body, if you will, at least culturally and politically and religiously, God opened his heart. And it says, according to tradition, that Dionysius was further instructed by Paul and later became the first bishop of the Church of Athens. <laughs> well, that's no insignificant thing. Well, he is one. And there was a lady also named Damaris, who we thought, as we studied, it was also a very important lady there. And it says, and others with them. And they're just as equally important. But, but you think, just one or two or three or four, that's not a big response for Paul. I mean, if I went out and preached... <coughs> In Athens like that, and four people came, I think I'd just hang up my, my gloves and retire. Well, now wait a minute. The one, or the two, or the three, or the four, their hearts were opened by a sovereign God who had a purpose in it, in that place, in that time. Paul did his part relying on God. God's always doing his part, the unseen part, and those things married together, and there's a church 
that was founded there and, and built strong for many, many years. I don't know exactly how long. Okay. After that, though we don't have the time this morning, we, we discussed different ways and strategized about how we might be more effective in our evangelism. So, all right, for time's sake, now the last of all, or at least the, the past two months, we've studied some of God's divine attributes that we found in Acts chapter 17. All right, here's where I want, how I want to do this, how I want to have a little fun. Without looking at your notes, I don't know if you got them there in front of you, some of you do, but without looking at your notes, what I want to do is I want to give you an attribute of God that we've studied. And I want you, in your own words, you don't have to say it like I said it, or like the definition there that I put down, but in your own words, just briefly and succinctly define that attribute. Say what that attribute means. Again, the words you use are not are, are not the critical things. I just want you to see if you got the idea behind it. And then if you have if you've answered one, then you can't answer another one. So that's <laughs> I know your competitive nature. <laughs> Some of you are already on the edge of your seats. <laughs> so, uh, so, Some are slinking down. Some are slinking down. I should have thought more about that attribute. So, okay, well, I know you got it, so this won't be too hard. All right? So, God is eternal. What is eternal? No beginning and no end. So, this drawing is exactly right. Drawing it out a little bit more, maybe. Um, was there ever a time as far back as the time it could be said where God was not? Okay. Okay. Yeah. No beginning, no end. It says it. Always been, always will be. Okay. So that's eternal. Paul said, "The God who created everything that exists. If there was nothing." Something created everything, and that something was eternal God. Okay? Joni gets the first gold star. God is self existent. That's a little tougher one, isn't it? Okay, a CAT? self-existent he exists because he exists <laughs> as he told me I am because I am I am that I am I like that I, I like that uh, illustration of the burning bush it was not consumed he didn't need the bush to manifest his presence he, he exists outside of it not consumed very interesting yeah so God has the ground of his existence in himself you know we think of everything as derived from something else we certainly are derived from God Things that we make, we put together. If we're going to put a project together for Christmas. We take this material, that material, and we make something. And there's the thing I made. It's derived from other things. And those objects that we took were derived from chemical compositions, and and then down to the atomic and subatomic levels. You know, but wherever, however you want to view it, it's all derived. But God, His existence is not derived from anything. So, okay, good. God is omnipotent. You see why I made, made you only answer one? Because I knew some of you would be, be hesitant. 
But you know this one. Omnipotence. Omnipotent. It's close. I think I, I know what you're thinking. I can't name it yet because that's another one. All power. Right. <clears throat> Omni, all, uh, absolute in one sense, and, and power. Yeah. So God has all power, meaning that he has all the power that we think he has, or that we're willing to grant to him. Is he... Okay. Power to do all he wills to do. He has all power that can be had. Yeah. He has all power that can be had whatsoever. And it's really an infinite power because God is an infinite God, limited by his own nature and will. But yeah, but it's got it. It's all power to do all he wills to do. So man can, of course, man has a will that God created, and we can. We can, of course, prevent God from doing certain things that he wishes to do, right? <laughs> God is loving and compassionate and patient with us, but no, we're not preventing him. All right? Uh, God is immutable, immutable. Who said it? I, I heard it, but I didn't see. Unchanging. Unchanging, okay. Cannot mutate cannot change. I, the Lord, change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Malachi. Three. One. Oh, I didn't know. Let's see right in there somewhere. No change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay? No change in God. That was a hard one for us. I remember when we studied that and we struggled a little bit with that. I struggle with them all when you really stop and think about it. But that one was like to think of a, an eternal and yet unchanging doesn't change at all. At all. At all. <laughs> That's very difficult, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In a world of changes, you can count on him. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he's been faithful to tell us about himself, what he expects, what who he is, who we are in relation to him, so you know what to expect, as you said. I mean, with our earthly fathers and mothers, sometimes we don't know, with situations we don't know, but isn't it good to rest on the fact that God is God, unchanging, immutable? Yeah, faith. Well, I think it's comforting because sometimes it seems like he's changed. Yeah. Completely random. Appear to be random, uh, but God doesn't act mm -hmm. randomly. He, he's 
Right. But the biblical truth is, as you said, we know he is completely faithful and true and constant, even though it appears otherwise to us. A lot of things make it appear otherwise, but we, we, we land, our minds rest on the fact God is, is not changing. All right, a few more. We're almost out of time. Immense. God is immense. This one's very much akin to another one. I, I used them both, but immensity. This may be one of the more difficult ones to remember. If I want to take a crack at it, we, we won't make fun of you if you're wrong. Well, remember, and if you're open in Acts 17 there, that it says um, uh, God is not far from each one of us at the end of verse 7, 27. Remember what I said about that? Greatness. Okay, it is, it's a little like greatness, but really, really we're emphasizing something that's more how we might think, think in terms of where he's located. Okay. Yeah, and location is a lot like another one we're going to look at in just a minute concerning his presence, but, but, but that he, he fills all things. You know, he said, he said uh, that concerning Solomon, you know, what is the house that you would build for me? You know, do not I fill heaven and earth? And so that's the idea behind God's uh, immensity, that he fills his creation um, and we shouldn't think of God in terms of you know space or distance. We should think of Him as being present and immense in His, his creation. In all of God, this is the challenging. Well, one of the challenging parts of that doctrine. They're all challenging, aren't they? But one of the challenges of immensity is that not part of God is present in part of creation. All of God is present in all of creation. And that's one of those wow moments, isn't it? God is undivided. He's simple in nature. Simplicity of God means he doesn't he's not composed of parts like everything else is he's an eternal one a Unity in every way and so all of God is present in all of his creation. So that's a big challenge. That's what immensity is All right, God is self-sufficient It's almost like self-existent, but It's a little different take on it You don't serve him because he needs us Okay us. Yeah. We're not meeting a need or needs he has, but because he loves us eternally and desires to fellowship with us. Exactly right. So he's sufficient of himself. Having no need outside of himself or no influence outside of himself. Alright, he's omniscient. Knows all things. Everything we know or could possibly ever know or ever will know and infinite, infinite how would I say that? Infinitely beyond that. Okay, and then omnipresent, Sam? Everywhere. everywhere. He's everywhere present. He is, and then, and then again, that's kind of like his, his uh, immensity, uh, but, but I think omnipresence carries maybe the idea more of the, of the relationship that we hold to him, that he's present with every one of his people at every moment. The idea of his omnipresence. Presence means, you know, we're in each other's presence now. If we were not, we'd be separated. With God, we should never think of being separated from Him. No matter where we are, what our circumstances are, the, 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 the difficulties of our life situation, He is present. 
with every one of his people, holy, meaning all of God, at the same moment in time. So when you call God on the on the prayer line, you don't get the busy signal. That's what guy said. So, so God is very unique. We're out of time, so I'll I'll wrap it up there. But I hope this study was encouraging to you, and even maybe just a recap of it uh, re- reminded you of some of those things we saw along the way. There's nothing whatsoever to compare God to. He stands alone, above, beyond uh, all that we could ask or think. And so maybe he, he be glorified and exalted as such. May we elevate our worship of him. May we elevate our thoughts of him. May, may we not allow our ideas or others that we come in contact with ideas to remain unchallenged when they bring God down. May we bring God back up in our thinking uh, by his grace to do that. So I encourage you to to do that and encourage you to uh, to share your faith with others. Whatever you know of God, share that testimony. Speak of the word of God and uh, God will use that to his, to his glory. All right, any parting thoughts or shots?